Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, quickly, to, since I wasn't here last week, catch up a bit. Um, the Bible, if you read it, says that life without God is no good. But here's the thing. It gives you the answer, but doesn't necessarily give you the work. So remember in math, when you would take a test and you could write down the right answer, but if you didn't show your work, would you get credit for it? No, right? Your teacher would put on there, show your work. You got the right answer, but I don't know how you did it. So you don't get any credit. Ecclesiastes shows us the work, why life without God doesn't work, why it's not good. And so back in chapter one and two, Solomon sets out to say, I want to look at living life as if God did not exist. And I wanna explore all these ways and see if they work. And so he tackles the six big things that grab mankind's heart, right? They're money, power, religion, friends, work, pleasure. So he begins to test these things out. Let's test pleasure out. So he goes for it. Parties at his mansion with 15,000 people there. But eventually Solomon says, I got tired of that. I got tired of waking up in the back of my chariot with a brand new tattoo, missing my wallet. So he moves to the next thing, work. I'm just gonna accomplish a bunch of stuff. And he builds out everything, he gets tired of that, right? So he's going through each one methodically. And at the end of his experiment, he says, vanity. It's enigma. I, I think the best way to translate that word is it's just an enigma. It doesn't make sense. It seems like that would really do it. I see other people and they seem like they're having a lot of fun. But when I did it, you know what? It didn't satisfy me. It's an enigma, right? So now we get to chapter five and he comes to religion. What about religion? And for a minute, Solomon kind of puts on a different hat. It's almost like this. It's almost like Solomon is a preacher's kid that backslid and in his backslidden state, he begins to look at the church and look at religion from that perspective, which I don't know if you've ever read like a backslidden person who begins to critique the church. I really enjoy those perspectives because they've looked behind the veil. They've seen church for what it is, the good and the bad. And usually they're very insightful. They have really, oh man, that's true. I better be careful. Oh, I could fall into that same trap that this guy is telling. He's not making it pretty anymore. He's being really honest about it. So Solomon is like that. He's like that backslidden preacher's kid who's been behind the veil. He's seen it all. And now he begins to say, hey, religion, be careful. Be careful, okay? So that's chapter five, first part of it. Verse one, Ecclesiastes five. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know 
that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Every preacher should underline that little passage. (laughs) For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you avow a vow to God, do not delay paying for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Here's Solomon's take on religion. And he essentially says this, be on guard. Be on guard when it comes to religion in three areas. Number one, guard your steps. Have you ever noticed the way that people walk? It tells you something about that person, doesn't it? So on Monday, Charity and I were going somewhere and I'm driving and there's a guy walking along the road and he's all bundled up because it was cold. And I, I didn't know, old, young, I said, that's an old guy, isn't it? And when we passed him, I looked back and it was a really old dude. And the reason why I said that is because it, his mannerism was like just, oh, it's a labor to be out here. He was just dragging his feet, just hunched. He looked like a broken man. Like the way that you walk says something about you. Young guys with a swagger, right? They come swaggering into a room. You're like, oh, that dude is prideful and pompous just by the way that they walk into a room. I think it's kind of like guard your steps. Be careful. We are in a culture today that really highlights the importance of self-esteem. Like it's now, it's, like, it, it's a thing that's taught to kids. Self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem. Does the Bible agree with that? I think what you find over and over in scripture is whenever a man comes in close contact with God, he has no self-esteem. So David is king. He's killed Goliath. He's defeated every enemy around. In 2 Samuel chapter seven, God comes to him and he just says, oh no, who am I? I'm just a shepherd boy. Oh, you're God, I'm not. Job, who has been ranting and raving his whole book, I wish God was here. I wanna talk to him. I've got questions for him. He asked 300 questions of God. God shows up and guess what he says? I despise myself. Oh no, why did I ask all those questions? Isaiah the prophet, chapters one, two, three, and four, and five. He is just looking at it and getting everybody else's sin. The Egyptians are sinners. The Israelites are sinners. Those guys are sinners. He's just nailing people. Chapter six, God shows up. The seraphims, holy, holy, holy. He says the very pillars that held up the temple swayed with the glory of God. And what does Isaiah say? 
What's up, bro? Good seeing you. No, what does he say? I am a man undone. I'm, I'm literally being, it's, it's Hebrew. My body is being ripped to shreds by this. I'm a man of unclean lips, All right? Come to the New Testament. People encounter Jesus. John the Baptist, who is a fiery preacher, when he encounters Jesus, what do he say? I'm not worried, worthy to tie the dude's shoes. Are you kidding me? The centurion, who's the, the guy that's maintaining peace in Israel, he's got all the power in the world. When Jesus says, I'll go to your home, he goes, I'm not worthy for you to come to my home. The Syrophoenician woman who wants Jesus to heal his daughter says, I'm just a dog, right? Peter, pick any text you want. He's like, ah, I'm a moron, right? Over and over. I'm a sinful man, depart from me. Paul, the closer he got to God, the more he said, I am chief of sinners. You, every person that encounters God, and you know what God never does? Never says, oh, come on, you're not that bad. Buck up, little camper. I like you, come on. Like my favorite is Isaiah 41, where Jacob's like, I'm, I'm just a worm, I'm just a worm. And God replies like this, he goes, he, he, it's, it's funny, I think, he goes, uh, you worm Jacob, like he agrees with him. You worm Jacob, knock it off, cause I'm with you. He doesn't say, oh, Jacob, you know, you're a worm now, but you'll be a caterpillar and pretty soon you'll be a butterfly and everything will be great. God doesn't do the self-esteem thing. He, he never does it. And so what Solomon is getting here, if you just look at broad view of it, it, it should be when you come into the temple, realize who you are meeting with. You're meeting with the creator of the universe. Stand in awe of him. That God's not like us. He is other, uh, he's nothing like you and me. And we should have this wonder and awe. And when we come into his presence, there should be this immediate humility, like a David, like a Job, like an Isaiah, like a Jacob, like a Peter, like a Paul, like a, oh, right. I'm coming into God's house now. This has been a big thing for me lately because we're trying to create a building now, not a temple, a church. But my thinking on it is there should be a spot that says to you and me when we enter it, you're in God's space now, be humble. This is God's space. Now, how to do that, I don't know. But really, if you look out throughout the history of Christianity, that's what designers tried to do. They tried to make, when you walked into a cathedral, they wanted this awe to take place. That when you came in there, the high ceiling and the bigness of it and the acoustics of it was to resonate in your heart. You are entering into God's space now. Be humble. Realize that. Know where you're at. And if you've ever been in a big cathedral, that just happens to you. I've been in St. Peter's Cathedral. You walk in there, it, it immediately just, your soul just goes, oh, okay. Okay, I'm in a very important spot right now. So how do we do that today in modern, in a modern building? I don't know. Like I fought hard. I wasn't gonna put a screen in there. I didn't want a screen in there because the screen, like you advertise and, and you get like stuff, messages beamed in. I, I thought, I don't want that. I want when you come in here for this to be this, this a sanctuary, a God space. 
I finally caved on Tuesday, just yesterday. I'm like, okay, fine, put it in there. Because we probably need it. But it's a prayer. If you want to pray, my prayer is that when you walk through the doors of the sanctuary outside, yeah, we'll talk, we'll try to inform, absolutely give you information, what's going on. But when you enter into the doors of the sanctuary, God's space now, holiness, awe, wonder, majesty. That's why I love the windows. I want to, I want to be able to see God's finger in creation as I go in there. And if you look at old cathedrals, that's a, that they always had windows in them. Like it's a very new thing to have these really dark places of worship where it's really dark and you turn off all the lights and everybody can't see anything, right? Up till 75 years ago, you couldn't do that because you didn't have lights. So they had windows and, and they had stained glass windows to bring color and vibrancy into them. Man, I still, I resonate with that much more than pitch black nothingness. So Solomon is saying, when you come in to God's space, Watch your step. How are you walking in? It should be in humility because you are encountering the creator of the cosmos. No matter if that's true, shouldn't we dress up? Because we've really casualized the way that we approach God now, haven't we? 50 years ago, you went to any church, it was suit and tie. Dresses for the ladies, hats on, right? That's the way it was. So Matt, don't you think we should dress up? And the argument I've heard is this. If you, if I was going to meet the president, wouldn't you dress up? I would say, depends on who the president is. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I just, my, my answer to that is actually, not if he was my dad. If the president's my dad, I don't have to dress up. So there's that other side of it, that yeah, he's also your dad. And it's much more than attire. You can come in the right attire and have the absolute wrong pompous attitude. That what matters is, where's my heart at? Is my heart coming in here in a humble kind of space saying, I am now meeting with the creator of the universe. It's all about attitude of my heart, not the attire of my body. So number one, this preacher's kid who's gone rebellious says, you should be humble when you're around God. Watch your step. Number two, guard your offerings. He says, draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. What's the offering of a fool? Could in context, you could probably make a good case that it's vows, promises, but I would suggest it's something else as well. Because if you read Amos chapter five, Amos begins to harp on the way people were sacrificing. You can just read 5, 21 through 26, where God says this. He says, I hate, strong word. My wife and I, we don't let our kids use that word because it's so strong. God did not check with me when he wrote Amos. He says, I hate, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your feasts. I hate the noise of your singing. Essentially, if you add all those verses up and you bring it in today, God's saying, I hate when you're in church. I hate it. Now, why? Read verse 26. 
Because on the side, they're coming into God's temple. They're saying all the right things. they're, They're making all the right sacrifices. But Friday night, they were sacrificing to other idols. And they come in Saturday morning, Sabbath day, and then they're making all these offerings to God. And God's like, do you think I don't see that? You're trying to play me for a fool. Don't play me for a fool. I saw what you did last night. Don't come in making sacrifice, acting like we're all fine and that what you did last night does not matter. That's what God's saying. He's saying, I hate it when you play me for a fool. Stop it. It's like when you see one of your kids with chocolate all over their face and you're like, did you get into the chocolate? No. What is on your face then? It must be brown marker. Do you think I'm a fool? I can smell the chocolate from here. Right? It's like that. Do you, are you playing God for a fool? You're treating me like an idiot, God's saying. Don't do that. Instead, the right sacrifice to bring to God is a contrite and broken spirit. God, I am so sorry for what I did last night. It goes back to Luke 18, where Jesus gives this parable about two people. One of them is a Pharisee who stands up, I'm so glad that I fast and I give and I'm not like that moron. And the other guy, a sinner, wouldn't even lift his head up, but just kept beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know which which one went away righteous? Not the pompous dude who's bragging about how great he is, but rather the repentant sinner who's on his face saying, God, have mercy on me. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Don't play God for a fool. The Bible says all things are naked and open before him with whom we have to deal. We come to church and say, God, you know who I am. Help me, guard me, change me, transform me. As I take of these elements, may Jesus, you increase and may I decrease. That's the right offering to bring. So guard your steps, guard your offering and guard your mouth. Over and over, he says, look out, look out, look out. You ever say anything stupid? Just honey and manna comes out of this mouth, Matt. Nothing more. It's beautiful. We've all said it, right? We've all said things that were like, I can't believe I said that. One that still haunts me to this day is I was on a trip to Israel with John Corson. I was in the school of ministry, just graduated from there, was being sent by Applegate out to Vanuatu to be a missionary there and teach the Bible. And in the little space there between those two, I went to Israel with John. So I'm on this trip and John's my hero. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And, I, and we're at this stop and we're actually getting on a boat and going out to the, Gal- the Sea of Galilee. And I go, I was the last one off the bus. And I look over and John's Bible was sitting there. And his Bible was like massive. It had been hit by a sprinkler or something. So it was just, it was swollen up. You, you couldn't miss it. It was just giant Bible. So I'm like, oh my goodness, he's gonna need his Bible. So I grab his Bible and I get off the bus and uh, I go walking out and I see it's John, his wife, and this guy named Rick Vesnes. Anyone remember Rick Vesnes? Yeah, another hero of mine. So like three very important people to me. And so I go over there and I'm like, I have his Bible and it's very obvious because it's like this big. I'm like trying to, you know, it's like a backpack in my hand. So I bring it over and I'm like, Hey, I found your Bible on the bus. He's like, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And everyone's smiling. They're like, oh, this is a wonderful thing. And I should have stopped right there, but I didn't. For some reason, I added this little 
statement. I said, yeah, I thought you'd need that sucker. Yes, exactly. Rick Vestey just went, oh. I mean, literally, he just turned away and walked. And John just went, oh. And I just turned around and went back on the bus. You guys go on the boat. I'm gonna stay here and just repent and beat my breast that I would say anything like that. I called John's Bible a sucker. Awesome. Be careful. Be careful with your mouth. That thing will get away from you. Couple notes on that. Number one, and this is what I try to tell myself. Because of our mouths and how they can get us in so much trouble, live life like you're always mic'd up. Do you remember a couple of years ago, there was a CNN reporter, her name was Kira Phillips. She was doing a, um, a CNN news thing for a presidential speech. She left, went to the bathroom, and in the bathroom, she's talking with another reporter and the holidays were coming up. So she was talking about going to the holidays with family. And she goes, man, I gotta protect my brother because his sister is a control freak. And then it went worse from there. The only problem with it was this. Some sound guy forgot to hit mute. So her conversation in the bathroom was broadcast over the entire CNN network. The only good news is it was CNN. So 20 people heard it. So that's, that's, that's the one good takeaway. Could you imagine that? Man, Thanksgiving is gonna be awesome this year. Live life like you're always mic'd up. Here's what Jesus says, it's Luke 12, two and three. He says, it's what you utter in the darkness will be shattered from the rooftop. That ever happened to you? Things you thought was confidential, things that you thought, hey, this is just between me and the other person gets out and everybody knows about it. And it comes back and the guy's hurt or the gal's hurt. And you're like, oh, that's so bad. That's gonna happen to you if it hasn't. So the, Jesus would say, be super careful with what you say. Live life like you're always mic'd up. Before you ever say something about somebody else, Matthew 18, Jesus would say, go to that person first and tell them. That way, if you say it to somebody else, they're like, yeah, he already told me that. It doesn't hurt you then. Do, if we did Matthew 18, so many of the interpersonal problems that we have would disappear. That if you have something against a brother or sister, first thing is, I don't tell it to somebody else. I don't get counsel from somebody else. I go directly to that person and say, bro, this is bothering me. Sister, this is what happened. Oh my goodness. 90% of our issues are gone right there, but we don't do it. And instead, what we say in the darkness is shouted from the rooftop and people get hurt. Live like you're mic'd up. Number two, a lot in, about vows in here. A lot about vows. Be careful with the vow. It's like a fire. A fire is great in about one spot, your fireplace. Anywhere else there's a fire, bad news. It's like fire. Yeah, sometimes a vow is okay, but you know what? The majority of the time, what I think is vows get you in trouble. And here's why. Very often when we're in the temple, we're in the sanctuary, when we're with God, when we make a vow, here's what we're actually trying to do. Barter with God, right? God, whew, if my wife doesn't find about this, I promise that I'll do that. God, if my boss doesn't find out I blew it like that, I promise to do this, right? We're trying to say, 
God, if I do this, then you do that. We're making barters with God. You know what that's actually called? Who said it? Paganism. That's exactly what it is. That's the whole system of paganism was, I come, I bring something to God. Now God is indebted to me. He owes me something. Be careful of that mentality. And it creeps in so subtly. My favorite story of this is this, it's a, not a true story, but it's really good. It's this carrot farmer who grows carrots. And one day he's out harvesting his carrots and he picks up the best carrot he's ever grown in his life. And he thinks, I wanna give this to my king. I love my king so much. This carrot has to only be eaten by the king. So he packages it all up. Next day, he takes his donkey, goes into town, gets a meeting with the king, presents the carrot to the king. King, I found this carrot. I've been growing carrots for 50 years. This is the best carrot I've ever grown. You're the only one that should eat this. And the king's like, wow, thank you. And the king's like, don't you live out on hard Scrabble Creek? Yes, I do. I've got five acres out there. I'm gonna give it to you. I want you to grow more carrots. You're such a good carrot farmer. What, are you serious? Yes, take it. And so the carrot farmer leaves. There's a nobleman who was in there. He was like, hmm, cool. He goes home that night, looks through his stables, finds the best stallion he has. Next day, he brings that stallion into town, gets an appointment with the king, brings a stallion and says, last night I was in my stables and I saw this stallion. And this stallion has never been ridden by another human. And I thought the only human that should ever ride this stallion is you, my king, because I love you so much. Here's the horse. And the king says, oh, thanks, and walks away. And the nobleman's like, what? Time out, king, time out. Yesterday I was here. A farmer gave you a carrot. You gave him five acres. I give you this beautiful stallion and you give me nothing? And the king replied, the farmer gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. And he walked away. How do we come to God? What's our vows? Are we trying to manipulate God, which is paganism, to get him to do something for us? Give him a horse so we get five acres. Be very careful of that. Vows very often are doing that. We're bartering. And the Bible says this, it never works. You will never indebt God to you. Cain tried it right out of the gate. Genesis four, Cain tries it, right? With his offering. God doesn't accept it. You, give, you, give your, you gave yourself your horse. And what does he do? He gets so mad, he kills his brother. You keep going into the Bible. You get to the prodigal son and the older brother. The prodigal returns. The dad throws a party for him. What happens to the older brother? He pouts. God, look at all this stuff I've done from you. Father, I've, I've been here. I helped you. And you've never thrown me a party. He pouts. It does not work. Be very, very careful because we do the same thing. God, I don't watch those kind of movies. God, I give you 10%. God, I don't cuss, except for that one time in the car, but that person really deserved it. You know that, you were there, come on, right? I go to church and we think that we're indebting God to us. Not that those are bad things, but that's not the way God works. That's pure and simple paganism. Or the other side of a vow is this. You make a vow because whatever's happening in your life and then you fail to keep that vow, what happens to you? You have a little foot 
It's called a foothold, Ephesians chapter five says, that's etched into your soul where the enemy just gets a place that he can attack you from. Look at that, you failure. You can't even keep your promises to God. You're such a moron, you should give up. That's what happens. Vows, vows are very, very dangerous. To me, what's much better is this. When I come to church, here's how I pray. I say, this is my desire. I'm not making a vow about it. God, this is what I want to be. And I know apart from you, I cannot be that. So fill me with your spirit. Reshape my heart into the kind of heart that desires those things. Something's gonna miss in me because I know that's the way to live and yet I'm not, so help me. Help me to be the dad I want to be, the husband I want to be, the neighbor I want to be, the community member here in Grant's Pass. I want, God, help me because apart from you, I will never be it. My heart is misshapen and I need you. To me, that is much better. That is the gospel. That's the good news. Anything bows to me, violate grace so often because it's opposite. It's God comes after me God accepts me, God loves me, God forgives me. And out of that, I grow a beautiful carrot. And I say, I've got to give this back to him. That's the good news. It's a heart of responding to how good our king is. That's right, not, not vows so much. Be careful of those, right? So thirdly, the context of this in religion is big idea, I think, we do not come to church to try to impress God. To say, hey, I'm varsity. Hey, look at me. Look how great I am. We come to church to be impressed by God. The psalmist says two things over and over. Come, let us magnify God together. Let's get a bigger picture of God. Let's be reminded of how great God is. And then the other thing he says is, what is man that you're mindful of him? Good theology to me always does do those two things. Makes God look bigger and me look less. God, you are so good. Why would you love me so much? That is why I come to church. I want to be impressed with him. And so over and over, what Solomon says is this, listen, listen. If I wanna have God look bigger, then I better listen. Psalm 46 puts it like this. Be still and know that I am God. So I have, when I'm leading Monday morning prayer times, I've been beginning them by just two minutes of Psalm 4610. Let's just be still, be quiet for two minutes and be reminded of who this space belongs to. Do you know how long two minutes feels like when I'm up on stage not talking? It feels like 10 years. I'm like, my goodness. I'll keep looking at the clock. Like, what in the world? You can feel people kind of, a little bit of shuffling because we're not equipped for silence anymore, are we? Like the moment I step off this stage, guess what, this, guess what Josh will do back there? Or Michael? Push play. Why? Because we like to have sound around us. It makes conversation easier. We don't like silence anymore. Yet the Bible over and over is like, be still, be silent, be listening. I think in seminary, I should have had a class that was learn how to be silent. Just, there should be a class, whatever it is. Silence 502. Here's how you shut your mouth and listen to God. 
because it is so foreign to us today. Be willing to hear him. We come to church to hear from him. So I should listen. Like seven times in Revelation two and three, it says this to the church, to him who has ears. Who here has ears? Right? But it's saying something, to him who has ears, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the church. That there's a certain way that you come before God's presence that allows you to actually hear what he's saying. A stillness, a willingness, a humility, an honesty, and a hearingness. So let me try to apply this. Um, Has anyone heard of meditation? Right? Psalm one, the very first Psalm. The book of Psalms is about meditation. That's what it is. So the first one just starts out by saying, blessed is the man who meditates on God's word, on the law. Like his delight is in the law of the Lord. On it, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll bring forth fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. Those are huge promises. All based on what? Delighting and meditating on God's word. Here's what science is finding. Meditation is transformational to your brain. At some point, you can just check it out if you want, but it's amazing to me. When you meditate, when you stop, still yourself, when you're quiet, when you're reminding yourself of God's nature and who he is, here's what happens to your brain. It grows. Like it darkens, which means it becomes more dense, more neurons, more stuff. Your anxiety just plummets. It goes way, way down. Your memory improves. Your brain gives out these waves. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Alpha waves are super good. When people are meditating, guess what waves your brain puts off? Alpha waves, positive, thankful, grateful, repairing alpha waves. That's what happens. Your immunity goes up. Here's the one that just, I could not believe. You know what a telomere is? You have a DNA strand, right? On the end of it are these little things that every time your DNA splits, these little telomeres at the end get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. It's like your death clock. And when they disappear, so do you. So remember Polly? No, Dolly, the sheep that was cloned. Like when it was cloned, it, it was a lamb or a, a young sheep, but it was in age, like eight years old, the same age as its cloned mother because those telomeres were too short. So it was like, uh-oh, cloning's not gonna work. Here's what happens when you meditate. Your body releases this, this chemical that actually repairs and makes the telomeres longer. You get what the Bible says, long life from meditation. Like literally, it's making the DNA telomeres longer and longer and longer and longer. How cool is that? Be still and know that I am God. Why? Because God's saying, it's how you live good lives, healthy, long lives. Well, Matt, what do I meditate on? What, what, what am I supposed to think about? Here's one of my favorite passages. It's Hosea chapter two. You know the book of Hosea? Maybe we'll study that next because it's so good. This great prophet, good Jewish boy, loves Yahweh, serves God. Man, he's looking for a spouse, praying to God. Who should I marry? What does God say? 
Mary Gomer the prostitute. He's like, what? Gomer the Protestant or prostitute? What'd you say there? How am I gonna introduce her to my mom? This is so embarrassing, right? Hanukkah's gonna be hard this year. So he does it. She's unfaithful to him repeatedly. So much so that they have a son that he names that son, not my boy. That's literally his name. He's not my son. No, that one's not mine. I don't know how he knew. Somehow he knew that was not my son. All right, so uh, God keeps telling him, go back, take her back because this is how Israel has treated me and I keep taking her back. So in chapter two, there's this wrestling and God says this. Here's what this is all about, Hosea, all right? Gomer is a picture of Israel and the unfaithfulness that Israel has done to me. But here's what I'm going to do. It's verse 14 of Hosea chapter two. He says, I am going to allure her out to the desert. Unfaithful, cheating, prostitute Israel. I'm gonna allure her back to the wilderness. Now, why would God do that? To an unfaithful, cheating nation. Remind them how sinful they are. Give them a whooping. No, he says, so that I can speak tenderly to her. It's the most brilliant passage. Not to go and remind them how sinful they are, how broken they are, how stupid they are, but rather to speak tenderly to them. To give them for the Valley of Acre. The Valley of Acre was a place that was really bad. Sinful, bad stuff happened in the Valley of Acre. To give them for the Valley of Acre, a door of hope. To change things around. They've been aching, painful, broken, destroyed. I'm gonna give them hope out there. On top of that, I'm gonna make their vineyards full. Vineyards in the Bible always speak of wine, speaks of joy, Psalm 4. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring joy to them, hope and joy and speak tenderly to them. He just goes on and on and he goes, and here's why. So hopefully in the desert, they'll start calling me their husband instead of their Lord. I want a new relationship. And this relationship is not gonna be, hey, you're my master and you're like, oh no, Lord. It's, I'm your husband, your lover, the one that takes care of you. When you understand God's nature, meditating on him is so brilliant. You're just reminded of the one that has adopted us and grabbed us and loves us and wants the best for us. And man, it just, it repairs your soul. That's what it does. That's what temple time is supposed to be. That's what it is. Come, be reminded of who I am. Great thing to do every morning. Grab a cup of tea, black, no sugar, no cream, just bitter and sit and meditate in the Psalms and be reminded of the God that we serve. It is brilliant. (sighs) Yeah, I know I could do it, but then I go into this mode, perhaps you've heard me, where I speak very fast. And people are like, I can't even understand a word you say. So I won't do that to you. Jesus, we love you because what Solomon did not know when he said, God is in heaven and man is on earth, what he did not know is that you left that place of privilege and power and paradise and you became earthy, 
you became like us to guide us back to yourself. And every question we have about the nature of the Father is answered in you. I pray that we would be a people who take time to be still and to be reminded of the king that we follow. A king who is so generous, we offer carrots and you give us land. I pray that you would correct my own heart where I've forgotten about the richness of your grace and your mercy and your love for me. And I begin to try to manipulate you and I treat you like some kind of pagan God. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for the vows that I've rashly said. Vows that violate your grace and mercy. May I, may we be reminded of how good you are of how much you love us. Do you understand that we are but dust, but you bought us and you're changing us and you'll never let go of us. Great is your faithfulness. So may we go from here full, full on who you are. May we know that when we come into God's space, we get to come in here boldly, before your throne of grace to receive help in our times of need because you want us here. You wanted us here so much that you gave up yourself so we could be here. Oh, may we be soaked in the good news. And may it transform us from religious Pharisees into sons and daughters of the King. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, amen. God bless you guys.